just to imagine something for a minute. Imagine that you've been taught all your life that the earth was the center of the universe. Imagine that's what your parents believed and that's what your schools taught and what society at large accepted as truth. It shaped your worldview. It shaped your assumptions about the way the universe worked. It was the lens through which you interpreted your world. And then somebody comes along in the early 1500s by the name of Copernicus. And he dismantles your worldview. And then compellingly proves that the earth is not in fact the center of the universe. The sun is. That really happened for many. Historians call it the Copernican Revolution. It was paradigm shifting, worldview changing. In our passage, a man named Saul experiences something like a Copernican revolution, a radical reorientation of his world view. Judaism had formed Saul's all-encompassing outlook on the world. It shaped his values and his heart commitments. It shaped the way he viewed himself and the way he viewed God and the way he would have viewed you. It shaped the way he even read the Bible. Christians were challenging Saul's worldview. Christians were calling his heart commitments a bunch of rubbish. And Saul hated them for it. All of that radically changes, though, when the exalted Christ converts Saul and makes himself the center of everything. All of that changes when Christ becomes the center of of Saul's all-encompassing outlook on life. Let's listen to this conversion story beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. 
And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your holy word, and we pray that it would be food for our souls this morning, uh, that it would nourish us, that we would be built up and edified by it, convicted because of it, that it would lead us to repent from ways we have not followed you or have not trusted your grace, and that it would turn us to worship you for your grace in our lives. I pray that it would also move us to proclaim your grace to others. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So to this point in Acts, powers and persecution cannot stop the gospel from spreading. The risen Jesus reigns. All power belongs to Him. Persecute His people all you want, but He will spread His kingdom far and wide. We have seen the gospel spreading in Jerusalem. It has gone out in Judea and all Samaria. It's now on its way back to Africa with a man on a chariot who is rejoicing in the good news. Persecution won't stop the gospel. At the same time, we learn from today's passage that persecution will follow the gospel. It will follow the gospel. Persecution isn't going to stop the gospel, but it will certainly follow the gospel. Jesus told his disciples that this would be the pattern. I I have chosen you out of the world, and because of that, the world is going to hate you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they will also persecute you. And in this setting, we encounter Saul, the persecutor. Saul has been persecuting Christians in Jerusalem. The first time we see him was back in chapter 7 at the end, where he callously watches people's garments as, as they basically roll up their sleeves to stone Stephen. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says that Saul approves of Stephen's execution. In chapter 8, verse 3, it says that Paul was ravaging the church and carrying off men and women 
and consigning them to prison. But now he takes his persecution to Damascus, which is 135 miles north of Jerusalem in Syria. It says in verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is on a tirade against any Jew that identifies with Jesus Christ. And the sense is given that that he breathes to destroy the church. He breathes to stop the gospel from spreading. He is seething mad about the spread of the gospel... More details about the nature of his persecution come out later in Acts through his own testimony. In in Acts chapter 22, verse 4, it says that he persecuted this way to the death. In chapter 22, verse 5, it says that he wanted to bring Christians back to Jerusalem to be punished. In chapter 26... Verse 9 to 11, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." Paul is torturing Christians to get them to deny Christ. Okay, when we picture Saul on the Damascus Road, don't picture a man wrestling with whether Christianity might be true after all. Don't picture a man who has these doubts about whether he's been wrong all of his life. Don't picture a man struggling with a guilty conscience about what he's doing. The Bible depicts Saul in a beast-like state, ravaging the church, raging fury, breathing murder. He is warring against the exalted Christ. And the reason he's so opposed to Christianity is that the message Christianity preaches, contradicts all that he's ever known and all that he's built his life upon. I mean, the crazy thing is that he had built his life on the Scriptures. He was zealous for God, according to Acts 22, but he missed the Savior of the Scriptures. His zeal wasn't according to right thinking about God. He was committed to his roots in Judaism. You see, Paul tells of this background elsewhere. We see it some and later on in Acts. We see some of it in Philippians and Galatians and 1 Corinthians. And, and he tells us that, that he had much to boast about. Prior to knowing Jesus, he, he boasted that he was a Jew. He, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin. Right? He was circumcised on the eighth day from his youth. He was raised in Jerusalem, which is a big deal if you're a Jew, because Jerusalem is the center of their religious life. The temple was there. 
He was educated at the feet of the respected Gamaliel. According to the strict manner of the law, he lived as a Pharisee. From the Jewish perspective, Saul was blameless under the law. He had no earthly accusers. He followed it so strictly. But then this gospel that the Christians are proclaiming enters the picture and and the gospel said that none of that mattered. The gospel said that all of that amounted to a big pile of rubbish, to use his own words later on in Philippians. The only thing that really matters, Saul, is a person's spiritual union with Christ. All of Saul's righteousness was bound up with his law-keeping, but the gospel was saying that none of that will ever make him right with God. The law was good, yes, Saul, you're right. But the, the gospel announces that it was only a tutor. Once Jesus came, the law as a covenant was no more. Christ fulfilled it for his people. Circumcision is unnecessary. Your feasts are unnecessary. The customs of Moses are unnecessary. Your temple has been superseded. You Pharisees have an empty religion. Not only that, you don't really know God at all. You know why? Because you crucified his son. The gospel was also saying that these Jews who did not believe in Jesus were no better off than the rest of the pagan nations around them. They were just as lost. That's how the gospel was confronting a person like Saul. And it's offensive to everybody who does not build their life on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I don't care how many hospitals you've built, how much money you've given away, how many good things you've done. If you don't have Jesus Christ, the Gospel says that your life is vain and that you're on your way to eternal punishment. Saul was seeking to destroy that message. But the exalted Christ has a different plan for Saul. The exalted Christ appears to Saul and he strikes him blind in verse 3. It says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now this is no ordinary light. Heavenly light, it says here. This isn't the sun popping out from behind the clouds. No, Saul says later on that this light was brighter than the sun. It also says in uh, chapter 22, verse 14, that God had appointed Saul to see the righteous one. Paul, in, in terms of his own apostleship in 1 Corinthians 9, says, Have I not seen Jesus, my Lord? You see, the light Saul witnesses in it is a manifestation of the glory of the exalted Jesus Christ. You know, perhaps you've shown a flashlight before in daytime. You cannot see the, the light because the sun outshines the light. Jesus outshines the sun. So look at the sun this afternoon. That's nothing compared to Jesus' glory. God created the sun for you to be amazed at the sun's light and then to say, that light, that glory is nothing compared to the glory of my son. The revelation of Jesus' glory 
humbles Saul. He falls to the ground in verse 4. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And, And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I want you to notice here the union of Christ with his his people. He says, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, Jesus so identifies with his people that to, to persecute them is to persecute Jesus. This is why the New Testament so adamantly opposes a divisive spirit in the church. To divide Christ's body, to destroy the unity in the church, to to wreak havoc in your relationships and to hold bitterness against one another and unforgiveness is to declare war on Jesus Christ himself because that's how united he is to his people. At the same time, what we're seeing here is how intimately close Jesus is to his people. How much he cares for them and walks with them. And this is brought out to show that Saul isn't just warring against some splinter group, some organization out there. He is warring against Jesus Christ himself. But the exalted Christ has plans for Saul. He could have killed Saul on the spot and Saul would have perished. But instead he shows mercy Patience with Saul. He gives Saul some instructions in verse 6. But rise and enter the city and and you'll be told what you are to do. The men, it says, who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So this is important that Luke brings this out because Saul is not having some kind of subjective mystical experience. There were other witnesses. They heard the voice. The whole thing struck them speechless. And then it says, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So Saul is undone. He's been blinded by Christ. The exalted Christ has, has put him in his place. He wants him to feel how dark his blindness truly is without Jesus And while Saul is waiting, the exalted Christ then uses a fearful but faithful disciple named Ananias. We meet Ananias. He's a disciple from Damascus. Verse 10 says that the Lord appears to him in a vision. And and this vision does at least three, three things. One, it instructs Ananias about how he is to serve the exalted Christ by going and praying for Saul. Jesus could have healed Saul on the spot, but he doesn't. He chooses to work through his people. And so he gives Ananias some instructions in verse 11. Rise and and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So, straightforward instructions. Rise, go, look, and pray. That's what you're going to do, Ananias. Two, the vision alleviates Ananias' fears. 
See, Ananias is afraid of Saul. We see this in verse 13. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to, to bind all who call on your name. So he has fears about Saul. This guy's going to punish me. This guy will imprison me. What if he's faking it? What if this is just his way of luring me in? People do that. Luring me in just to arrest me. Can you imagine the sorts of objections that your fears might raise? See, but the vision is meant to strengthen Ananias for the task because the Lord goes on to reveal and to reassure him what he has in store for Saul. And that brings us to number three, the vision reveals God's mission for Saul. So it instructs Ananias, it it alleviates his fears, and now it's telling Ananias God's mission for Saul. Verse 15, The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So that's, that's Saul's mission. To carry Jesus' name before Israel and the nations, and it's going to involve suffering. In other words, listen up, Ananias. I've got a mission for this guy. And this guy named Saul is going to so identify himself with me that he will suffer for my sake. He will speak for me, and when he speaks for me, he will suffer with me. So you go, Ananias. Don't be afraid. Pray for him. And so Ananias follows the exalted Christ. Just in passing, I think we should take note here that following Jesus doesn't mean he won't call us to some scary things. But he will reveal to us what we need to know about him and what we need to know about his purposes in order to follow him. Whatever he calls us to do, he will give us the grace to do it. He gives Ananias the grace. Ananias does what he says in verse 17. And it's here that we witness the exalted Christ saving and joining Saul to his church. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house... And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So what we're seeing here is that through the filling of the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit coming into Saul's life, God opens the eyes of Saul. Saul no longer identifies with his old ways in Judaism. He identifies with Jesus through baptism. He puts on Jesus' team jersey, so to speak. He went from warring against Christ's kingdom to spreading the gospel of Christ's kingdom. He went from destroying Christ's church now to building up Christ's church. He went from being a stranger to God's family to being called a brother. Brother Saul. All this took place 
because he witnesses Jesus' glory. Hardened as he was, committed as he was, sinful as he was, rebellious as he was, it was seeing the glory of Christ that saved him and transformed him. You see, Jesus became the center of Paul's universe. That's a story worth telling again and again. And it's no surprise that Luke is going to go on to mention this same uh, story two more times in the book of Acts. And it's, if you read Paul's letters, he's allude, he talks about that testimony four more times, and he alludes to it all over the place. In fact, it's no wonder what, where all of his uh, talk about union with Christ and his people comes into play. It's right here in his conversion experience. Why are you persecuting me? This is a story that our New Testament tells again and again and again. Because it displays so many different things about our God that should change us. First, this story should change us by compelling us to worship God for His sovereign grace in saving sinners. Should compel us to worship God for His sovereign grace. If there was ever an illustration that salvation is by grace alone, it's right here. It's right here. Saul was not on a spiritual journey where he just figured it out one day. Paul is, is not just coming to his senses finally. Paul is not just hitting rock bottom as if Jesus is the inevitable choice humans make after that. Saul was running a hell-bound race as fast and as hard as he could, and grace snatched him from the flames. He was an enemy of Christ. He was persecuting the way while paving his own way to destruction. Whoever's not in Christ hates Christ. There's no in-between. There's no such thing as kind of Christian or almost Christian. You either are for Him or you're against Christ. We come into the world against Christ. And we stay that way unless grace snatches us. In the middle of his rebellion, God's sovereign grace rescues Saul. And this is true from beginning to end. In fact, if you go and read Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, you will see that God had a plan in place before Saul was even born. Before Saul was even born. And here Jesus calls Saul a chosen instrument. God chose Saul to be an apostle. God planned his rescue. Before Saul had done anything good or bad, God fixed his sovereign plan. And here, we're just seeing it unfold. We're seeing it unfold in history. He had this plan before history. Now we're seeing it unfold in history. Saul doesn't have the slightest desire to seek Jesus, but Jesus steps in and says, you're mine. 
your mind. That's how grace works. Grace isn't something that God gives in response to something we do. Grace works for our good despite everything bad we did. And God God chooses who gets it. God chooses who gets His grace. The question is why any of us would get it at all. Why anyone would get it at all. The question this morning when we come to the Lord's Supper is, Lord, why am I a guest at your table? That's the real question. Lord, why does a guy like Saul get grace? Because God is free to save whomever he wants. He isn't constrained by anything outside himself to save anybody. He chooses whomever he wills. Which means that in terms of our conversion to Christ, we have nothing to boast about and everything to praise God for. We owe every part of our deliverance to sovereign grace. When we were still sinners, when we were dead, God made us alive in Christ. And so we we worship Him for sovereign grace in Saul's life and we worship Him for sovereign grace in our life. Because it wasn't, do, it wasn't owing to anything in us that we are born again. That we can call God Father this morning. And that should cause us to, to sing about amazing grace like we did earlier. Second, never underestimate the power of the exalted Christ. That's something else this, this story teaches us. Never underestimate the power of the exalted Christ. Let's pretend for a minute. Let's say you're a Christian in Damascus and somebody comes up to you and says, who do you think is the least likely person to be saved today? Pretty easy answer. Saul of Tarsus. Saul comes to mind. I mean, this guy hates us. Did you see what he did to Stephen? Maybe you'd say, that guy is just too far gone. Now let's be real. Who have you thought about that in your own family? Is it a dad who just gets sick of you talking about Jesus? Is it a son who has betrayed you? Is it a friend at work who just loves his money and his toys and his girlfriends and you think to yourself, why bother? There's no way he'll ever believe. Is it a husband who blows you off when you speak of Christ and who seems to be running further and further into the darkness? Is it people in a city like like this one where many people's sense for the glory of God and it has been deadened by binging on NASCAR and Pokemon raids? Is it a neighbor leading the way for the LGBT community and who self-identifies as the sex opposite to that given to him at birth? Do we think he's too far gone? She's too far gone. 
I know it's true for myself that I've looked at people and said it's not worth it. They're too far gone. And boy, I will tell you, this passage rebukes that attitude. God says, I rebuke you, Brett, for having that outlook. Saul may have been the least likely to be saved, but that's the point. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. Christ is more powerful than our rebellion. The Spirit is able to create a new heart in the worst of sinners. Yeah, we resist Him. But the whole point of the Gospel is that Jesus overcomes our resistance. He is powerful. When we look at this passage, it's to send us away with hope that Christ is able to save anybody no matter how bad you think they are. I mean, He saved you, bad as you are. He saved me, bad as I was. Am. Our view of God is often too small. We box Him in as if He can only save a certain kind of person, that person who's seeking, that person who's open to hearing, that man of peace over there, and the one who's, who's in trouble, who's hit that rock bottom, maybe he'll listen, or, or one who has my education and my family history and my own interests. Listen, Saul was punishing and murdering Christian to advance his religion. Minus the explosive, this guy is ISIS. He's no different than a terrorist, and the exalted Christ saves him right in the middle of all his evil. Christ saves terrorists. The question is whether we believe that enough to give our lives in taking the gospel to them. Listen, Jesus didn't ask for us advice in determining who he wants to save, he didn't ask us. He is powerful to save anybody no matter what their background. Pray that we would be a people that trust His power to save the worst of the worst. Don't underestimate what God can do. Pray for Him to convert people like Saul. You know them in your life. Pray for them. Christ is greater. Third, as a church, we need to prepare ourselves to minister to any person Christ may save. We need to prepare ourselves to minister to any person Christ may save. I mean, if the Lord will join to the church the worst of the worst, then let's be faithful in ministering to them and in treating them according to their new identity in Jesus. You see, Jesus had to prepare Ananias to minister to Saul, didn't he? I don't know about this, Jesus. If I go back there, I might die. Jesus prepares Ananias, helps him to trust. Look, I changed this man. And Jesus will prepare us to minister to others like Saul. Sometimes, you know, we want the Lord to save people in places like White Settlement and South Las Vegas Trail and East Fort Worth, but we still have these lingering fears the Lord might actually start answering our prayers. 
And what would that look like? And what kind of people would that mean? And where, we, where do we start? And how do I talk to them? And he used to deal what? And she used to be a what? And I don't know what to do there. Not so sure. Yeah, save them. Don't save them. I don't know what to do here, Father. Listen, do you know how many flags that would have come up on our background check for children's ministry if Saul showed up? (laughs) What are you going to say? I'm sorry, Saul. I know you're working on the 13th letter for the New Testament, and you're an apostle, and you've planted dozens of churches, but you just can't serve and dig here. We wrote our curriculum based on your letters. We just can't serve in there because, you know, you murdered, murdered people and stuff. What would that say about grace to the world? Yes, yes, we use wisdom, of course. But do we really believe that in Christ, people like Saul become new creations? Their old has truly passed away. Behold, the new has come. Church, Christ can make anybody new. Anybody new. The old has passed away for them. Are we ready to believe that about them? If we're not, we don't truly know grace, even for our own lives. we got to get it through our heads that grace is not for good people. Grace is for bad people. And we're all bad. That's why we need grace. You got bad people and you got worse people. That's all the kind of people you got. We all need grace. So let's be ready to minister to any and all who come through our doors and enter our assembly. Ananias learned to call Saul a brother. He's part of the family. Jesus gave him the Holy Spirit. So Saul, what we're seeing here is Saul is getting all the benefits of being a member in His church. So when it comes to grace, we can't show partiality based on a person's past. We must treat them as Christ Himself treats them, as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Alright? And that's how we need to treat each other as well. And fourth, Christ displays His perfect patience to reach the nations. Christ displays His perfect patience to reach the nations. Jesus hints at this in verse 15 when He says that Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. But I want you to turn with me to one of those places I mentioned a while ago in Paul's letters. Paul is another name for Saul. So go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Page 991, if you're using a a pew Bible. This is the way Paul wants you to understand what happened to him on the Damascus Road. And we can go further. This is what God wants you to know. Okay, so I'm going to start in verse 12, actually of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. He says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. 
persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy since being ignorant, I acted in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display His perfect Patience. Perfect patience. The idea here is the utmost patience possible. As an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. So how does Saul function within God's mission to save the world? God's God's teaching us here Saul's conversion is a revelation of God's own character as one who is perfect in patience. And it has a goal. This revelation has a goal that many others would believe in Jesus for eternal life. The message of Saul's conversion is that nobody among the nations is too far gone for grace. They can still believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. I was talking with uh, Alvin Holmes this morning before, before church and we were rejoicing over his testimony a while back that God broke into his life 64 years old and saves him. Sixty-four years of rebellion. And he'll tell you God snatched him from the fire. Why? To display his perfect patience. Doesn't matter it's five years old or 99 years old in a hospital bed, Christ can save you and snatch you from the fire if you repent and believe. And it's all to display, nobody's too far gone. And that's what our conversion is about too. So that Jesus Christ might display His His perfect patience. You see, you were not saved just for your own sake. You were saved ultimately for Christ's sake. You're a showcase of His perfect patience. God didn't save us to showcase all that was lovely in us, but to showcase all that was lovely in Jesus who saved us. We had nothing lovely to showcase. Our life as Christians is like God's sketchbook where He is sketching a portrait of what His perfect patience is like day in and day out until He brings us to glory. That's why He saves us. He saves us to display how much patience He has and sending His only Son into the world to save sinners. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, let us remember God's perfect patience. Let His perfect patience compel you to worship Him for your salvation. 
Let his perfect patience renew your efforts to pray for the most unlikely of people in your mind to be born again. Let his perfect patience drive you to spread the message to others that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Before we celebrate the supper together, we're going to sing of the Lord's patience together.